everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the double L team, Lyle and Lawson. Lawson, how are you this morning? The Bolt Saga continues. No, the Bolt Saga. Well, Let's talk I think, about I think, it, I think it's kind of finished, basically. You know, Lawson, I'm so glad you bought a motorbike. For so long, you were wanting to buy a motorbike, and then for so long, you were wanting to get your license. Yeah. And now... It's just like a single sad guy who never gets to, you know, hang out with a girl. You have a motorbike. Yeah, I don't need to. You spend <laughs> spend hours on every day. It's just <laughs> wonderful. I'm not even joking. I was in a shed for like three hours yesterday. I got home like late. Like I, because I got here at like, you know, when, when do I arrive here? Like six quarter two. Th- 6.30, quarter two, something like 6:30, that. 6.30, quarter two. And then like I got home last night because we, we ran food drive for, for uni oh, and epic. delivered a ton of food. It was so amazing. amazing. And I got home at like 6 p.m. and I walked straight into the shed and worked on my bike till like 9, 10, something Someone like that. Someone needs to find this guy, girlfriend. And, no, it was so good. <laughs> like I... Like, I I, cause I, cause you know, you just like get in there. I'm like, oh, I could do this. I could do this. You know, you have things that you need to do and then things that you want to do. I'm like, I could shorten the chain. I could change these wheels. I could wash this. I could grease this. I could do. And it was just like, ah, oh, so cathartic. Like it I, is. I, I, my, it absolutely is. I, 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 I resonate. My mind Working is on things is really good. So clear. I just feel so connected, you know, like mm-hmm. it's awesome. But yeah, basically yep. like I had an exhaust pipe. The, uh, I put a, I, I had to like take these bolts off. I finally took them off. I put this other exhaust pipe on, and then all the bolts snapped. And so then I put the original exhaust pipe back on. That's basically that's basically my life at the moment. <laughs> it's trying to do things, and it's not working. Well, he's here on his bike this morning. He's that's in right. one piece. That's he's right. got a smile on his Amen. face. Life is good. Uh huh. You're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Let's have some positively different news. Okay, so I came across an article this morning. This was actually shared on the BBC, and this article is titled Six Things the UK Could Do to Tackle Climate Change. So, you know, the, the a lot of people are, are getting, you know, COP26 is coming up. A lot of people, they're having their say, oh, what can they do? What can they do? They've compiled a list of six. And I want to read through them and Lyle, get your thoughts and maybe get the listeners' thoughts. 0491-064669. Because there were some things in here that I think are, yeah, okay, fair enough. There's some other things that I think are really, really fantastic here. And I think that these are just things that literally every country could do to just Lower the carbon footprint. So let's start with the first one. The first one is subsidize warmth. And the reason that is is because England is cold. And in cold England, they spend a ton of money on um, particularly gas boilers, gas heating systems, central heating. They don't spend enough. Sorry? They don't spend enough. Oh, because it's not warm enough. Because the country's still cold. The country is still cold. But this is what <laughs> they've found. It's like, it's like every house has a gas boiler. Every house has gas heating. And it's like costs a ton and uses a ton of emissions and all these different things. And they're like, we need to get rid of this. So they've come Believe up. Believe me, the houses in England are infinitely colder than the houses in the United States. You reckon? Oh, absolutely. No question. Why is that? They don't have a heating culture that the US has. So the US is just like heat at all costs. Yeah, yeah. You, it's, it's like thirty below outside, and you walk around inside in your underwear. Yeah, literally. But 
the, the UK, you, they just put up with it. Yeah, they, they're very much more so. It's interesting. Very much, the houses are much colder in the UK than what they are in the US. Oh, wow. They tend to be like Australia. Australians don't really heat their house. They, they'll heat the room that they're in a little bit, but Americans heat the whole house, whether yeah. they're using that room or not. It's yeah, I, just all heated. I went to Canberra like a couple of years ago and walked into a house. It was like the first time I'd seen like real central heating in an Australian house. It's very rare in Australia. It's super rare, but apparently everyone in England has one and they won't need to replace them. And what they're uh, thinking of replacing them with is like hydro heat pumps. Okay. Yeah. So they're like getting, you know, rushing, you know, hot water around the... Around yes. the place works well. Works. Where, where are they going to get the hot water from? Um, I guess they're going to. It like it's going to be like an electric pump. So they're going to have an electric motor that attaches to the grid and heats it up. Okay. So it's just like electric hot water, basically. Yeah. So it's just there's just coal fired. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, hey, if you're in Iceland, you have run mm. hot water through your house mm. to heat your house. Yeah. Uh, or, or if you're in Rotorua in New Zealand, you run hot water through your house to heat That's your right. house, and you just pump it out of the. You just you just tap into it in the ground. Oh wow! And it just bubbles up and circulates through the house, and it's free. <laughs> It's called uh, volcanic energy. It is rather oh, polluting, though. So, oh, yeah. Okay. when the volcanoes go off, they do lots of pollution. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right, the next one that I thought was fantastic, and I love the title of this, Cut the Burger Rate. <laughs> and it's like, if they cut the burger rate, then they will very much reduce their carbon footprint. And obviously, it's talking about the, lowering the consumption of dairy and meat. And so, yep, they're like, hey, cut the burger rate, you know, get more people eating vegetables. This is a story I covered that already uh, they're, they're seeing, I think it was over the last 10 years, like a 17, 18% drop in meat consumption in England. Yes. But yeah, they're just like, hey, this is something that needs to continue. And because it will lead to better health, better health, better environment, better health. Mm hmm. Yes, great, absolutely, great stuff. Hey, this third one I saw was really interesting. They're like, we need to put charges for electric cars in every street lamp, and I'm like, that is genius. Oh, that is genius. That um, is serious genius. Yes, if they just like, re, you know, use some power from the street lamp to put a plug there, so you can like go up with your electric vehicle and just plug it in the way plug you go. It in, and there, yeah, that'd be great for your e-bike too. Yeah, for your e-bike. Like, because your you e-bike, you could just park between two cars, unplug the car that's plugged in and plug your e-bike. <laughs> Dude, it's like the phone charger situation happening. But it's it's interesting, like, because the, what they're saying is like, oh, yeah, okay, everyone ch- changes to electric cars, and then you've got this problem of... That would be not hard. Charge, ...charging station. You've got an electric power pole. It's already got a cable running up the middle of it. That's All you right. do is drill a hole, wire in a plug. It's done. Literally. It That's just like this for the cost create- of, like... 50 bucks. Create jobs, create industry right there, get all the electricians out, go to all, to all the power poles. Like, dude, that is a win, 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 win situation. I'm going to run an extension cord out to the power pole outside my house and run my whole house off. <laughs> <laughs> dude, that's actually so funny. No, nah, it'll probably have like some special plug that you can't get. But then it's like, okay, if yeah, it has some special plug that you can't get, that would be a yeah, There's, maybe a, there's like a solution a to this. There's a solution to this. Maybe. Stop people stealing electricity. There's a solution. Dude, the next two that they brought up I thought was interesting and Lyle you might disagree with this but the first one was climate accounting so so not this part you won't disagree with but basically for companies to you know take accurate um you know accurate estimates on how much like how big their carbon footprint is so they can reduce it and the second thing is if people do that then that will enable them um to 
it, basically they're, they're saying that the, the government will tax carbon and people re- rely less on carbon and then you'll reduce carbon usage. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is moving uh, on, moving personally, on. Next I think it's a genius idea. And one. finally, the last, the solution, the ultimate solution, throw money at it. If we spend lots of money on reducing carbon and coming up with innovative ways to do so, well, then it will be reduced. Yeah, that'll work. Always does. <laughs> Throw money at a problem. Solves it. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Let's talk about some more serious news. We promised we'd talk about Jacob Arminius. He died this day in a long time ago. Mm-hmm. 1609, I think it was, thereabouts, mm-hmm. at the age of 49. Uh-huh. Uh, Jacob Arminius, who that's of course his Latinized name, his uh, Dutch name was Jacob Herman Hermans Zoon. Mm. My Dutch is not very good. Now, Jacob Arminius, of course, if you're unfamiliar with him, was a very influential uh, Protestant reformer. Uh, he had he actually created a major split within uh, evangelical Protestantism. So let's talk about that split very quickly. Lawson, do you believe in salvation by grace alone? Yes. Yes. Alone. Yes. Nothing but grace. Well. You can't do anything yourself to save yourself. Well, like the Bible says, like, by grace through faith. Yes. Mm, uh-huh. so, so that. All right, so we agree on this. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. You see, by, this is what Calvin said. John Calvin said you're saved by grace alone. Nothing that you can do can merit anything towards salvation, right? No. Can you choose Jesus Christ? Yes. Is that something you did? Okay, so this is where Calvin went Mm. And Calvin's like You can't choose Jesus Christ Because the moment you choose Jesus Christ You've done a work And the moment that uh, works come into the equation Then that grace has been tainted by works And you are now saved by works, not by grace Mm. And so this is where Calvin said That Christ chooses who he saves And and it has nothing to do with us Mm. And as a result of that, he created the doctrine of predestination, which did terrible things to the character of God in that it, uh, it, 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 it made a God who is sovereign God in heaven and creates some people so that he can spend eternity with them and creates, brings into existence the vast majority of people so he can burn them eternally in hellfire. It also created really bad Christians. Yes, like who you know, uh, with the mindset of of predestination, could come into a country like you know, like could occupy the United States and colonize and bring in slaves and say, "Well, pff, I, what do you reckon? These guys are living in the jungle. Were if they God, destined if to God be had, saved? If God hadn't chosen them, then why should we worry about turning them into slaves? Exactly. Mm. Okay, so it it did create. So Jacob Arminius came along, and Jacob Arminius says, "No, you can choose God." And mm-hmm. Calvin said, uh, that's works. And Jacob and Arminius said, no, that's not works. That's salvation by grace alone. Mm. And Calvin said, but you've, you have introduced works into the equation. Mm. And Jacob Arminius said, no, I have introduced prevenient grace into the equation. Mm. And prevenient grace works like this. We have no power to choose Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. There is no work that we can do that will be of any uh, merit in our salvation. Yes. And God knows this. So Calvin and Jacobus are agreeing up until this point. And then Jacobus Arminius says, God then extends his grace to us, and by extending his grace 
to us, he gives us the power of choice, mm. and that's prevenient grace. And so when you make a decision to follow Jesus Christ, that is based on the grace that God has extended to you. Therefore, your decision to follow Jesus Christ is 100% by grace alone. Mm. And, of course, that was mostly, uh, I guess, um, continued through uh, reformers like John Wesley. Yeah. Uh, very strongly promoted this particular concept, which, of course, was lost here in Australia when we formed the uh, Anglican Church. Sorry, not the Anglican, the Uniting Church. And uh, and, and, and other reformers um, who followed in the footsteps of Jacob Arminius. And that kind of split evangelical Protestant Christianity between those who believed in free choice and those who did mm. not believe in free choice. And, uh, of course, you know, the Bible is absolutely clear that freedom of choice is the foundation of love. That's obvious. Mm-hmm. And we could talk about that all day long. Anyway, just thought it would be a great week to highlight the uh, Jacob Arminius and what he did. I did say that we would talk about this guy who um, the Bishop of Rochester in the UK has just flipped um, and he has gone over to the Roman Catholic Church. This is Dr. Michael Nazir Ali. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think he comes from like an Indian background or something like that. I'm not exactly sure. Mm-hmm. But the reason that he has flipped, he says, is because the Church of England has lost its way. It's fragmented. It's congregationalized. You've got different churches believing different things um, all over the world. And so he's moved over to the Catholic Church where he sees more uniformity. He sees uh, Pope Francis as somebody who is making moves very, very slowly, but at least they are uniform rather than just completely fragmented. Uh, he claims that he has not converted to Catholicism. Okay. He's just stayed in exactly the same religion and moved from one church to the other. I kind of agree with him. Mm-hmm. Church of England is pretty much Roman Catholic. Unless That's right. You're, unless you're from Sydney. Yeah. And if you're from Sydney, it's it's evangelical. Mm. Um. But it's interesting what he says. Is the Church of England is permeated by single-issue activists. Oh, wow. With a faddish agenda of cultural correctness. That is I intense. Agree. Yeah. That's intense, but I agree. And so he's listed a bunch of these things here as identity politics, critical race theory, multiculturalism, which is actually, uh, in his view, dividing uh, communities into different cultures rather than mm. bringing people together, uh, religion and gender, and neo-Marxism which is using uh, basically the principles of divide and conquer. Did he say anything about CRT? He did not say anything about CRT. Mm -hmm. That's surprising. But what he did say was that all of the issues that are now driving this within the Anglican Communion are based on emphasising the differences that we have with Mm. each other rather than emphasising the fact, rather than emphasising our sameness in Mm. Jesus Christ and we should be emphasising unity rather than division. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, we're joining us on the phone today for interview of the day is Vani Chu. Vani, welcome to the show. Classic. Thank you. Really good to be with you guys. Now, of course, Vani, every month we do an interview with uh, Jared Stackelroth, who is the editor of Signs. You're one of the the magazine writers for uh, Signs of the Times magazine. And this month, 
There's a fascinating article in Signs of the Times magazine about whether religion is the cause of all wars or not. And when Jared mentioned this one, it pricked up my ears and I thought, I'm going to have to have a conversation <laughs> with Vani about this. <laughs> yes, it's definitely an interesting topic, isn't it, Lyle? It is. I read your article. <laughs> I oh, disagreed. What did you think? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, this should be fun. <laughs> well, that's what I thought. I thought let's let's get Vani on the show on the show, and uh, let's have a discussion, Wait, and maybe so... our listeners can can join in on this one and tell us what your thoughts are. Is religion the cause of all war? Wait, so Vani, I haven't read this article yet, but what was your position on the issue? Like, has religion caused all war? I don't believe religion has caused all war. No. I'd be inclined okay, so, to agree with that, honestly. Well, well, Sam Harrison and and uh, um, Richard Dawkins, you know, they're they're new atheists who mm-hmm. are like aggressive atheists who believe that you know religion should be abolished because religion is the scourge of the earth. And one of their main arguments is that religion has caused all war. Well, are you going to agree with those people, Lyle? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you, Lawson. <laughs> I'm taking Lawson from my side of the argument. And think about this: I don't think there are any religiously motivated people in the Great Emu War of 1932. You know, I think that was just, that was Great just... Emu War. <laughs> Someone had to go there. The Great Emu War of 1932. Uh, if, if anybody is wondering about the Great Emu War of 1932, there is a great Wikipedia article on it, which of course is the source of all knowledge outside of the Bible. Um, but anyway. I am literally wondering about it right now. I'm going to have to look it up as soon as we wrap up our interview. Yes, a critical part of Australian history. Um, <laughs> all right, so here's my argument. My argument is that, yes, religion is the cause of all war, and I think that it should be obvious because World War One, World War Two. Um, and, and of course, I, I, I include the, uh, the, the Sino-Japanese War as a part of World War II. I know that's very controversial. A lot of people don't. Um, and so it all depends on when you start, put the start date for World War II. Uh, then World War II and the Balkans War, I see as being, in reality, just one conflict and a continuation of the same conflict all the way through and it being all about religion. Okay. And let's talk about some of those wars. Uh, what do you think religion had to do with World War One? Okay, so here's, here's, my, here's, my, here's my theory, right? Um, you have to hear me out on this one. So if you look at what started World War One, what you've got is a conflict between Roman Catholics and the Orthodox Church. If you go back to the Great Schism of, when was it, 1054 or something or other, the date somewhere around there, uh, you have the Orthodox Church splitting off from the Catholic Church. They become mortal enemies. They're just going to try and destroy and kill each other for the next millennium. And in World War One, you have... Um, you have basically an Orthodox who assassinates a Roman Catholic ruler because he doesn't want a Roman Catholic ruler ruling over Orthodox people uh, in Serbia. It kicks off the First World War, and then you have a whole bunch of funding that goes from the Roman Catholic side to the German side because the Germans are fighting against the Orthodox Church in Russia. And when that doesn't look like it's going to happen, the funding moves to the Bolshevik cause uh, because they're going to destroy the Orthodox Church in 
Russia. And when the Bolsheviks win in Russia, in the Russian Revolution, then you have the Orthodox Church buying them out and basically the Bolsheviks double-cross the Catholic Church and then you've got the rise of Nazism, which is kind of like the second big attempt to, you know, because, I mean, World War Two. most of World War Two was fought on the Eastern Front, um, fought, won and lost on the Eastern Front, I should say, um, which, again, is an attempt to destroy the Orthodox Church in, uh, in, in, in the East. You've got, you know, places like, once again, down there in Serbia, You've got, you know, what, half a million Orthodox people that are killed because they're Orthodox. You've got another 250,000 that are thrown into concentration camps because they're Orthodox. You've got 200,000 that are forced to convert to Roman Catholicism, um, which then, of course, continues straight through into the Balkans conflict in more modern times. So there's my, there's my, there's my, there's my (laughs) argument. And is that all of your argument, Mel? Oh, well, you she's know, setting okay. you up, bro. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> see, see, this is this is something that I teach in how to deal with <laughs> objections. I, I teach people to ask this question, and now it's being done to me. <laughs> this is against the rules. Okay, so what else? What what else? I think I I, I find interesting is the when Nazism arrives, the other religious element, of course, is the anti-Semitic element. So it's not just a war against the Orthodox Church. It's very much an anti-Semitic element that comes through there. And if you study the history of the same power that is, you know, funding and abetting and aiding, you know, if you look at in the in, in the First World War, the, the, the um, uh, Lenin's um, train trip from Switzerland to Russia, which really does kick off and, and aid the whole uh, Russian Revolution, you know, he travels in a train that is a sealed train. You know, there's no there's no uh, checkpoints or anything like that that they have to go through where the train is opened or looked at or, or the contents are, you know, because it flies under the flag of the Holy See. You know, that's very religious elements coming through right there. But if we if we if we look at the Nazi, the rise of Nazism and the anti Semitic situation Anti-Semiticism has a long and dark history in Christianity, particularly within uh, Roman uh, Catholic Christianity, and also within Protestantism in Germany. You've got, you know, Martin Luther who said, you know, things like, what shall we Christians do with this rejected and condemned people, the Jews? And so your two predominant religions in Germany uh, in, in the lead-up to the Second World War is Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism, which at that time were both fiercely anti-Semitic. Uh, you've got a pope who was the nuncio to Bavaria and then to Germany and has, you know, there's a reason why he becomes known as Hitler's pope, um, because of his anti-Semitic views uh, we could probably, you know, talk about in depth. So that to me seems to be very religious, not just race-based. Anyway, I'm okay. going to shut up. And uh, okay. well, I, I have now I have now expended all of my ammunition. That is um, all my powder blown. Okay, great. Let me try to shoot some arrows back at you. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. <laughs> So let's maybe um, go back a few years before World War One and actually look at the Russian Revolution and what sort of led to the Russian Revolution. 
So in the early 1900s, Russia is one of the most impoverished countries in Europe. They've got an enormous peasantry and they've got a growing minority of poor industrial workers. So most of Western Europe, they view Russia as this undeveloped, backward society because they still practice serfdom where landless peasants are basically forced to serve the nobility. And this practice continues well into the 19th century. And they don't actually abandon serfdom until 1861, which sort of gives peasants more freedom to not only organise themselves, but to think about what they want and about the power dynamics in Russia. So between 1890 and 1910, the population of major Russian cities like St. Petersburg and Moscow, they actually nearly double. So you've got overcrowded, destitute living situations. There's these Russian industrial workers who are, you know, really wanting money and they're starting to lead out protests against the monarchy, which lead to this bloody Sunday massacre in 1905, where you get hundreds of protesters who were killed or wounded because they're warring against the monarchy. In turn, the massacre sparks the Russian Revolution in 1905 because the industrial workers start to strike. And when they strike, the Tsar promises that he's going to work towards reform and he's going to, you know, try to bring about their country is better. But by this time, Russia's entered World War One in support of the Serbs, the French and the British, and they are absolutely no match for industrialised Germany. They get food shortages. They have greater casualties than any other nation in the war. They've got um, fuel shortages, inflation's going up. So they've basically spent all this effort and they're not getting anything back for it. So essentially, Russia, you know, starts off getting into the revolution because they're rallying against the monarchy's power and the disparation between what the peasants have and between what the wealthy have. Then you've got the February Revolution, which begins in 1917. So this is actually during World War One, And you've got people who are clamouring for bread, taking to the streets of Petrograd. They're supported by all these huge crowds of striking industrial workers. The protesters clash with police. And on March 11, the troops of the Petrograd army get called out to quell the uprising. They open fire. They start killing demonstrators. And this is essentially what, what is causing the revolution, the people's uh, lack of food, their lack of stable jobs, their lack of a successful economy, and their dislike of the monarchy. Right. This might be what happens when you talk to an actual historian <laughs> rather than just Lyle. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who don't know, Vani has a double major in history, uh, ancient history and modern history, I think from what, University of Sydney, is it? University of Sydney, yeah. <laughs> yes, well done. Okay, so that's fascinating stuff. Okay, can I then argue, Can I? will you allow me to argue this, that while these wars may not have been caused by religion, religion did involve itself in these wars? Yeah, Absolutely. So, for example, uh, the Crimean War in 1853, that would have been because um, that was basically the um, Britain, France, Turkey and Sardinia against Russia. And, you know, ostensibly it was about trade routes and power, but the spark that set off the war was actually really just tension between Catholics and Orthodox, just as you were saying about the Great Schism. So after there was violence um, over... Uh, 
access to Jerusalem and other places under Turkish rule that were considered sacred by both Catholics and Orthodoxy, the Tsar actually sent an emissary to the Turkish Sultan and he said, hey, you know, I don't just want equal access to religious sites, but I want you to recognize me as the protector of Orthodox Christians throughout the Ottoman Empire. And the Sultan says, well, no, I'm not going to let you do that. And that's essentially how the Crimean War gets started. So there definitely are wars, Lyle, where religion did play um, a factor. Mm, and it's very, very fascinating um, to actually look at the role that uh, that religion did play in, well, the Crimean War. And, and, and so I was just sort of hanging on to my argument a little bit here, and that is that there was an element of that that continues through the next few wars all the way th- down through to the uh, Balkans War in the 1990s. Look, I would say that there are probably tensions um, that were left over from that war that continues. But, I mean, you could say the same for people who are interested in power, people who are interested in expanding their land, people who are um, interested in nationalism, material, militarism, um, political alliances. I mean, there are all kinds of factors that start wars, Lyle. Ah, indeed there is, indeed there is. Okay, so uh, Sam Harris and um, and Richard Dawkins who say that religion is the problem. Why, why is it actually? Let me ask you this question. Why is it that they claim that really what is the What is the thing about religion that creates all wars? So According to Dawkins, Sam Harris and Dawkins, yeah. Yeah. So what Dawkins and Harris claim, they say that faith and religion are the most prolific source of violence in our history. And they argue that if we were to absolutely get rid of religion, just completely remove it, that that would solve all global conflict. Okay, so there's been a lot of uh, effort to do that in many countries around the world, uh, and we would probably look at that beginning with the French Revolution uh, taking place, you know, in uh, the late 1700s in France, which then um, creates the seeds for communism around the world. And, of course, communism, you know, China's a, a, a great example of that where they've currently got, you know, two million Uyghurs in concentration camps and so forth, where the endeavour is very much to get rid of religion. Has that solved the problem and has that created less conflict, less war and less bloodshed? Is atheism and secularism the solution? Well, I'm so glad that you brought this up, Lyle, because you're totally proving my point. In 1789, Catholicism was the official religion of France. And, you know, most of the population of France was Catholic and Jewish and Protestant minorities weren't even allowed to be full members of the state. But by 1794, they've shut down all of France's churches and religious orders the intellectuals of the French Enlightenment start criticising the church and they nationalise church property, they exile 30,000 priests and they force hundreds more to either get married or to be killed. They replace the Christian calendar. And from what you get from this, from this removal of religion or this attempted removal of religion, is the reign of terror. And the reign of terror, of course, then results in 40,000 people dying, but that's really a, a, a drop in the ocean compared to what communism actually accomplishes, you know, in the last 120 years or so, where you've got, you know, over 100 million people who die. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, of course, you're right that a lot of um, the communists and uh, even new atheism actually stem from the French Revolution, uh, the USSR had a campaign against religion called the League of Militant Atheists or the League of Militant uh, Godless People. 
And this involves a violent persecution of religious believers and institutions. Now, would it be fair to say that a, 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 a nation's national religion, and when I say a national, you know, the predominant religion of the nation, um, has an effect on the ideology of the nation, on the way the nation thinks, and therefore on the way that it looks at, say, for instance, the value of human life and uh, conflict with other nations and conflict within its own nation? Uh, look, I think there's no denying that a person's faith background or our beliefs do affect or, or should, I think, affect the way that they think about things politically. Um, but then you get situations such as in the United States where originally the, the primary religion would have been Protestantism and yet you've got such a widespread, uh, shall we say, widespread political belief among the United States today. And it's interesting. Well, so this is interesting because this is actually some research that I did that I, I might just toss out there. Because um, if you look at uh, the Second World War, if we go back to the Second World War as an example, and you look at the most vulnerable uh, people in the armed forces in the Second World War who would be prisoners of war, um, and look at the way that they were treated by various nations. If you look at, say, England. Uh, which has a Protestant heritage. We would we would agree that England has a Protestant heritage by the Second World War. The mortality rate of POWs was zero point zero three percent, which was actually lower than the general population because the POW camps were not in areas that were being bombed. Um, if you look at if you compare that with the United States, also Protestant, the POW mortality rate was zero point one five percent because of course they had to survive crossing the the Atlantic to be held in a, in the US. Uh, then if you look at Germany, which is basically social Darwinism, their mortality rate was 26.7%. Eastern Europe, which is um, either Catholicism or Orthodoxy, 32.9%. Uh, Soviet Russia, which is social atheism, 35.8%. Uh, Japan, which is Shinto Buddhism, 40.4% mortality rate. Those are some starkly different figures, and it seems to me that there is something that is is in inherently different in the ideology of these nations and my argument from that would be that religion is not the cause of war and conflict or well, my argument now would be that it's not the cause of war or conflict but it does affect the way that we look at people and nations and how we interact with them and if we compare protestantism say with uh, the dark ages catholicism with uh, paganism then we're kind of going backwards yeah, absolutely. And look, I'm really glad that you brought up uh, the persecution in Germany because one thing that people often get mistaken about is because Hitler used the Catholic Church as a propaganda tool in order to try win people over to, uh, to support the Nazi Party. But when you actually look at who was persecuted within Germany during Nazi Germany, uh, you actually have very heavy persecution on both the Catholic Church and Protestants alike. Because when you actually look at Nazi, Nazi ideology, they, their, their general long-term goal was to de-Christianise Germany. Barney Shu, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Breakfast Show on Faith FM. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.